Welcome to TYT Interviews, I'm Anna Kasparian and I am so incredibly excited for the interview that we are about to share with you all. We have Nomi Prinz in studio. She is a Wall Street insider and author of many books and her latest book is Collusion. Has nothing to do with Russia or little to do with Russia. It's all about the central banks and how they rig the world. Very clever title for the book, especially given all of the you know news that we're seeing about Russian collusion. Mm-hmm. So people might think it might have something to do with that, but I think the topic is actually a lot more important. And it has to do with the central banks and how the economy might seem great based on the news coverage that we're all seeing. But in reality, if you focus on the real economy, Things are not so great for average people. And we'll get to the details of that in just a minute. But Nomi, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So the crazy thing is, back in the day, before I really did much on air work at TYT, I was the guest booker. And I remember booking you on the show regularly. You would you would write for The Nation, mm-hmm. and you know, you would have all these smart conversations with Jake Uger. And I remember being in awe of, of just how intelligent you are and and how successful you were working in Wall Street in the 90s when a lot of women didn't really, they had no representation in Wall Street. So I wanna start off by by discussing how you're a Wall Street insider because you have some inside knowledge that I think a lot of people in mainstream media lack and that really kind of gave you the foundation for the books that you've written. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about your beginning in Wall Street Mm -hmm. and why you kind of walked away from that to do yeah. what you do now. Yeah, so my beginning was actually in New York. I decided that I wanted to live in New York City. So I, I sort of graduated, or I hadn't even graduated actually from school yet. I was working at IBM as a programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy who was working with me told me about a thing called a headhunter. And I was like, "Oh, that sounds cool. Can I get one of those to get a job in New York? Um, wasn't involved in finance, didn't have a checking account, you know, none of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to be a job at Chase as a programmer. And that sort of led me on this path. This, this um, I worked at Lehman Brothers after that. That's when I actually started knowing what a central bank even was. I was on this sort of major trip to China and Malaysia and the Philippines and, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and I thought that was fun. I thought actually banking gave me an opportunity to travel, um, which which it did. Um, and and then though over the years, um, I, I wound up moving to London for Bear Stearns, which no longer exists. Lehman Brothers no longer exists. Um, and I was there for a number of, throughout you know much of the 90s. So when so many changes were going on and, and, and all of that, but at the same time things were getting more. Uh, the greed was was beginning to, to become adversarial to sort of everybody, and there was a, there was various debt crises during that time. There was an Asian debt crisis, Russian debt crisis, and so forth, and it started to really get to me. I, I started like going to work and then marching in things like Jubilee 2000 um, in Birmingham, Birmingham, England, mm-hmm. um, and so kind of that happened. And then I, I still wound up one more company, moving back to New York um, to Goldman Sachs, uh, where I stayed a couple years. That was that was. Kind of tragic for me personally, from a moral perspective, and um, and and left after 9/11. Wow, you know, it's it's amazing though because working in that world, as you know, is incredibly lucrative, and to walk away from that takes a, a great amount of courage and morality. So if you know if you're conflicted at all about your time working for Wall Street, I mean. You shouldn't feel bad because I think the the knowledge that you're sharing with the world is so incredibly important. You know, you wrote um, all the president's bankers, which kind of shows you that cozy relationship that our politicians have uh, with the banking world, and I think that we've seen that play out in some of the policies that continue to benefit the big banks. Um, but talking a little more about you know your more recent book, the central banks 
are not, they get criticized, but they don't really get covered much by the mainstream press. Their, their policies don't get covered much by the mainstream press. And this narrative post 2008 has been, hey, you know, we had Dodd-Frank, we have more regulations. And as a result, consumers are protected. The economy's doing better, but that's not the real story. What's really going on? Yeah, what's really going on is in the wake of the financial crisis, all of these relationships came to bear. So in 2008, going back 10 years, what happened was Goldman Sachs had a relationship with at the time the Bush administration through Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, who had come from being a CEO and chairman at Goldman to becoming the Treasury Secretary. And there was all sorts of other relationships that then fed into the Obama administration with money and so forth into who he chose and what he did. And even Dodd-Frank, which really didn't reform right. or restructure the banking system. But along the way, the New York Federal Reserve, which is part of the 12 member bank, member reserves, banks of the Federal Reserve System and the Federal Reserve in Washington, work together to provide subsidies and bailouts to the major banks. Mm-hmm. And it's the same banks all the time. It's the same six banks that you know last week came in with record profits. It's the same six banks that in 1929 crashed and managed to get the Fed then to help them in different ways. And it was the same six banks um, that ultimately took these subsidies from the Federal Reserve into their balance sheets into their books did not provide help to the regular economy. And as a result, we have this dislocation between the economy and where wages really are and participation in the workforce and what kind of jobs people actually have and what solidity they have. And these large record profits and record values in the stock market and also record debt that's been created because the Federal Reserve and other central banks decided to provide that as an unmonitored, unregulated, unlimited system. I love that you mentioned the types of jobs that Americans have, because this is something that doesn't get talked about in any conversation pertaining to the economy. We talk about the unemployment rate, but we never talk about the underemployment rate. And so while most Americans do have jobs at this point, there's never a real discussion about whether they're full-time jobs, whether they're jobs that actually pay them living wages. And so, you know, can you just talk about that a little bit? And then I wanna get into the discussion about quantitative easing. Yeah, because it is connected and, and um, the types of jobs that people have um, and, and the way in which they get paid and the fragility that they have, you know, sort of going to those jobs or having multiple jobs or so forth is very much today's real employment picture. Mm-hmm. The unemployment stats, the employment, the full employment notion that's been sort of a historic value throughout um, our, our history, at least the, the hundred or so years the Federal Reserve has been around and monitoring it in that capacity, um, isn't. Um, all it does is look at sort of top line numbers. It looks at the major companies that report how many people they hired, how many people they fired, and it, it's sort of skewed anyway mm-hmm. um, towards a reporting mechanism that doesn't have as much to do with any kind of quality of job. Um, and so what happens is that feeds into how they also monitor inflation. It looks like prices aren't inflating. However, rents are inflating, wages are deflating. You know, health insurance is inflating, wages are deflating. You know, so there's there's all of these financial um, you know, sort of measures mm-hmm. that people go through, normal, regular, most citizens go through that aren't captured by the sort of major statistics of the Fed or of the government or of politicians that, that, that use them. I think that's where a lot of the frustration toward Obama came from and, and why we now have someone like Trump as our president because the Obama administration was kind of boastful about the economic improvements under Obama's watch. 
And the reality is while things might look great in the stock market, everyday average Americans are struggling to pay their rent, to afford homes. We're crippled by student loan debt. Wages haven't you know, gone up much. In fact, wages have remained stagnant. Right. And so, you know, Everyday Americans are not feeling the benefits of an improved economy, but there are certain individuals who are enjoying, you know, newfound wealth or increasing wealth. And and why is that? What are we seeing in terms of the Federal Reserve's policies benefiting a few, while you know, really potentially harming everyone else in the future? Right. So so one of the main policies, the idea of quantitative quantitative easing. I even look at it as a tongue twister, quantitative easing, um, is that the Fed both keeps rates low. And what that has done is allowed the banking system to be fueled by money, by liquidity um, when they were in their worst hours. That has enabled them to buy their own stock over the years, which propels the value of their stock higher and the compensations of their CEOs higher. And that allows them to sort of look better and accumulate cash on their books and also reserve some of it. It's a Federal Reserve system with the Fed by more than the Fed even requires just so that they don't have to lend it out and deal with any of the risk associated with actual people. They will have the risk of buying their own stock. Because that risk is mitigated. They buy their own stock, it goes up. They buy more of their own <laughs> stock, it goes up more. And that is because they're fueled by a very cheap money policy by the Federal Reserve. And, and that also is, is part of a system that has other central banks throughout the world. So the globally, the cost of money to major banks and the major companies that are their clients is very, very cheap. So the banks get it directly. Um, they work with companies. Um, that can then issue debt or basically borrow and they use that money cheaply with low interest rate payments in order to buy their stock. And this is why we have this bubble. So when you look at how you know we have one economy who is not involved, for example, in the stock market, but has a lot of student loan debt and mm -hmm. has a lot of health care payments and is, is struggling. Um, and we look at this other proportion who are invested in those markets or who are, or who are moving. Mm -hmm. those markets and manipulating those markets. And those are the people and the companies that are actually benefiting. So 10% of Americans own 84% of the stock market. So you know, sort of do the it's math. Crazy. Um, and, and it goes higher at the very top of that, right? So when the market's going up, because it's fueled by cheap money coming at it to um, the people and organizations that have the most access, well, then that changes the whole equality of the system of people versus those beneficiaries mm -hmm. by that much more. So in the in the meantime, we are noticing inflation, right? And you know, the Fed's policy in response to inflation is usually to increase interest rates. And Powell, who is you know the new head of the Federal Reserve, claimed that he would increase interest rates. It happened, you know, it was a very tiny bit. I mean nothing to write home about. But what ha I mean, you you mentioned in your book that we're kind of in this um, holding pattern, right? How long can we remain in this holding pattern before this house of cards just kind of comes tum tumbling down? Right. So one of the things, and you, you you kind of mentioned this, is that it's 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 a very little bit. Mm -hmm. So these adjustments that have come into the interest rates, which have bottomed out to zero percent in the United States, to negative in parts of Europe, to negative in Japan, because these are the major central banks sort of colluding or working together to sort of keep the price of money so low globally. Every time you increment up, there's a little reaction in the market. Right. They're not watching, really. 
how many jobs one person is holding or whether they can pay the rent or whether they have enough in their savings such that if they get fired they can pay the bills next month. That's, that's not what they're watching. They're really watching how much the markets react to their little teeny adjustments. So there was a little teeny adjustment um, in the end of 2015 and that kind of created a big tremor in the markets in the beginning of 2016. Fed goes up a little bit, Bank of Japan comes in, European Central Bank comes in and they smash rates down. So on average they stay at zero. Same thing happens throughout 2016. So on average we have some focus from a media perspective on the Fed, but in reality the cost of money is pretty much still zero. Mm-hmm. When it starts to go above zero, and that's what Powell is actually concerned about because that starts to crush stock markets and that starts to create a situation where companies can't pay their debt. Forget whether people can't pay their debt if their interest rates go up. Mm-hmm. That's when worries start happening. So he's doing this kind of holding pattern thing with a little bit of incremental adjustments, just like Janet Yellen did in that position before, um, and just like Ben Bernanke didn't do um, before Janet Yellen to keep ultimately um, things in check in this holding pattern so that they don't screw it up, not for people, um, but for these markets. For these markets, it's, it's incredible. So talk to me a little bit about what the government has purchased um, in terms of securities, because that's a relevant piece of this puzzle that could really blow up. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, so one of the things that happens, and this is just bond math, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you basically buy a bond, the price of that bond goes up, you're buying something, there's demand for it, the Mm -hmm. price goes up a little bit, and and, and the rate, the interest that someone pays on it just goes down in in a mirror relationship. So what the Fed did in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis is they said, we're going to just like, you know, sort of fabricate electronic money and we're going to just buy some bonds. Mm -hmm. And that will have the effect, and this is what I think doesn't really get covered. Buying lots of bonds, and they bought ultimately two and a half trillion dollars just of U.S. Treasury bonds, so U.S. Treasury debt. So the Treasury Department issues debt. The banks, the primary banks, are the ones that actually sell that debt to their markets, to to China, to whomever. Um, And then what's happened is they've collected those bonds back and they've they've put them back to the Federal Reserve. So Treasury issues two and a half trillion dollars worth of debt. Mm -hmm. Banks get the debt. Banks give it to the Federal Reserve and say, here, here's some money we have on reserve. Mm-hmm. All because the Federal Reserve created cash out of nowhere to do this. So that's two and a half trillion dollars of debt that does absolutely nothing but like sort of, you know, live in its own little triangle. In addition, the Fed also decided to buy one and a half trillion dollars-ish worth of kind of toxic mortgage bonds at the same time. That was the crux of the financial crisis. So the big banks are sitting there with all this like crap that nobody wants. They don't want it from each other. Investors at this point have like figured out like what happened. They, there's no value to this. So the Fed's like, you know what? We'll, we'll write a check for one and a half trillion dollars to you know, bonds that aren't worth anything. And what that has is a knock on effect to not only creating cash to buy those bonds and get them away from the books of the banks. The banks get to say like, hey, we're cool. We don't have all these like bleeding assets on our books. We're good. Wow. It also allows them to say, well, the remaining stuff we have on our books, we're going to value higher. Because you guys, just basically the Fed, demonstrated that there's somebody who wants what we can't get rid of. So now you've bought that, so then the other stuff that we still have left has more value. So they value themselves up. 
And then they get this cheap money and they buy their bonds. They value themselves up, value themselves up. It's like you go to a garage sale and if someone buys this like, you know, sort of bicycle without tires, it's stuck in the corner and rusting or something, they're like, yeah, I'll, I'll pay a thousand bucks for that. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, wait a minute, wait, there's value to like bicycles with no <laughs> wheels? That are rusty. I want one, mm -hmm. and and all of a sudden that that sort of increments up as well. So that's what the Federal Reserve did to the tune of four and a half trillion dollars, and that's what the other major central banks, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, um, they they basically the G7 ish plus a couple central banks to the tune of 21 trillion dollars. So again, not only this money kind of like coming into buying debt and in some cases directly buying stock, like in Japan. It then gets borrowed cheaply by the banks, by these companies. They do the same thing and they, they, they move stuff up and they create this sort of bubble atmosphere. None of which, by definition, by definition, if you've borrowed a whole bunch of money um, that you never have to pay back, um, mm -hmm. that the banks did, that you know, they basically got cash for, um, goes into any kind of real economy. There is no way for it, it, it it's ring fenced into the Fed's books. There, there is nowhere for it to go. And so it does nothing. So linking it to the economy is is wrong. It's so incredible. I mean, just seeing what's happening and, and more importantly, how no one's paying attention. And I mean, there are very few people and you, we had a discussion about this off camera where you have people to the right of you who see this issue and they're kind of, you know, raising alarm about it. And then you have, you know, progressives, liberals also concerned about it. So both sides of the aisle realizing this is a problem. And then you have people in the middle who are either in denial about it or have a vested interest to pretend as if everything is is doing well, right? And and something stood out to me in your book that I wanted to quickly read. You had the chapter about Mexico right. and there was this one sentence that gave me, I don't know, like a sick feeling at the pit of my stomach. So let me set it up for, for the audience. It's the World Economic Forum in 2008. And you know, the world already saw that the global economy was going to collapse. And it, you know, a lot of it had to do with the US. And here's what you wrote. Um, Though the looming crisis had not grabbed the public spotlight yet, impending system failure in the United States was already evident to uh, these elites and any journalist paying attention. Is anyone paying attention in, in the field that I work in? Um, again, I, I think not in sort of the mainstream media because you have people talking about what the Fed did today. Mm -hmm. You know, did the Fed raise rates? Did the Fed not raise rates? Is the market going up? Is the market going down? You have these sort of isolated, you know, is, un, is, un, is unemployment up or down? So, so there's discussion about, about some of those things. We're, we're dissecting it here. That's, that's not common mm -hmm. um, in, in a lot of places. And it wasn't that common before the financial crisis because it's like if you said um, there's going to be a collapse, people were just incredulous. It's like, well, yeah. Yeah, there's other news, we'll cover that. We'll cover that collapse thing when it happens. But the reality is not only is everything in place for another collapse now, but it's actually a collapse that will occur from a higher height. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned this 21 trillion and everything that entails and every bit of inequality that has created. And so when there is ultimately a crash from that standpoint, because the banking system hasn't been reformed and it's really been enjoying a lot of the fruits of this sort of generosity from these central banks, um, yeah, then, then the same things start to happen. And they're already doing the same um, types of activities that they're doing in addition to just sort of 
you know, stealing from their customers. The bigger transactions, the sort of mortgage toxic assets at the at the crux of the financial crisis, are now stuck with, stuffed with corporate loans mm -hmm. and and corporate debt because that's what's been created in the last ten years. And what banks do is they scoop up sort of the waste um, and they repackage it and then they sell it off with like you know sort of pretty wrapping to um, to any investor who's you know, dumb enough to, to, to not look inside the box before they, they buy it. And, and that same thing is, is sort of happening again. Oh. So when it comes to the toxic mortgages, um, the adjustable rate mortgages, I think people are under the impression that that's no longer an issue. And it's something that I've been digging into for a couple of years now because I've noticed that Housing prices have gone up. In fact, they're more homes right now in certain parts of the country are more expensive than they were pre, you know, 2008 economic collapse. And so I'm trying to understand and and forgive me if this isn't something you've looked into. I know this is kind of out of out of nowhere, but if wages have been stagnant and Americans are dealing with more debt than ever before, right. including before 2008, yeah. then how is it that housing prices have been able to go up so much? I mean, is there another bubble brewing in that regard as well? I, I think to an extent in the mortgage market, mm -hmm. what's happening now is that the prices that have gone up tend to be more at the top of the market mm -hmm. because those are the people and, and they have the access to financing that sort of the subprime people that used to have more access don't necessarily have that ha that said there is another subprime sort of bubble brewing as well because sort of the middle tier banks that get their money and then sell sort of their loans back to the bigger banks to repackage on out are starting to do that more and more. Wow. Um, and so and so what's happening is that the very top of the market has expanded a lot because people have gotten all of this on paper money from the stock market and so forth at that part of the market. And at the lower part, it's, it's sort of just beginning. Mm -hmm. But the debt that you're talking about, the fact that a lot of people are living under more debt than they ever have before relative to what they're making, that's what's going to make it any kind of financial crash, whether it's to their homes or to the economy in general, that much more painful. Right, right. And just to give you some numbers. Um, by the way, this was reported last year, so I'm sure the numbers have gone up even more. But according to MarketWatch, Americans had 1.021 trillion in outstanding revolving credit debt in June of 27. By June of 2017, this beats the previous record in April of 2008 when consumers had a collective 1.02 trillion in outstanding credit revolving debt. Now that's just credit debt, credit card debt. Keep in mind that student loan debt has increased, and that is. Is, you know, really crippling millennials right now. They're unable to be part of the economy the same way that their parents were. And mortgage debt still continues to be a little bit of an issue as well. So the real economy is not, you know, experiencing what the top 1% right. of the United States is. And I love that you're drawing attention to that. I love that you're a fighter. And you know, one final thing that I really want you to share with the audience, yeah. um, you had mentioned to me off camera that um, people hate you because of what you do, because <laughs> of what the information yeah. that you share with us. And um, you know, you don't have to get into specifics, but what is that like? Well, it's interesting because it's sort of, I mean, I hope some people like me too, but it comes from both sides of the sort of yeah. right and the left. And I think to some extent on the left, there has been this embrace of what, for example, the Federal Reserve has done and the acceptance that there's been enough regulation of the banks to keep things in the form of Dodd-Frank okay and stable. And the most thing, that, the most important thing for us to do is fight to not have that go away. 
Um, and so when you start to say, yeah, but we need to have Glass-Steagall to reseparate the banks, the Federal Reserve has actually not just helped these banks, it continues to help these banks. That's its job. They are members of the Federal Reserve System. They have been members since it was created in 1913. The Federal Reserve was never a charity organization. So that's where I think some of the people um, in, in, in sort of the left might need to examine what, what the Federal Reserve has actually done and where it's gone. And the fact that Janet Yellen, for example, just went off to get you know hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever for a speech in front of you know billionaires in Tribeca in New York as opposed to you know talking to homeless organizations about you know, whatever you know mm -hmm. so it's it's mm -hmm. we, we see that happening and then on the right I I think I think there's um there's uh, some of them want to keep this status quo because it, it works well from a business perspective to have this, this sort of cheaper money source coming into the system because that makes everything look better yeah. And that's that's where you have that. Well, Nomi Prince, thank you so much for joining us today. And please check out her book, Collusion, How the Central Bankers Rigged the World. Fantastic book. Thank you. And I, I thank you for writing it and sharing it with us. Thank you so much. How long you and me?